Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. And welcome back after taking a two-week break. I hope that you enjoy the holidays. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given only six minutes to present. This is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include Chinese demographics, cancel culture, female bias in the workplace, the U.S. mortgage market, and corporate credit. Our lead-off speakers today are Charles Goodhart and Minaj Pradhan, who co-wrote the book, The Great Demographic Reversal. In a What Happens Next First, we will be hearing from each of the two co-authors in their own six-minute remarks. Charles Goodhart will speak first. Charles is the Emeritus Professor at the London School of Economics and a former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. Charles is also known for his own Goodhart's Law, which is that any observed statistical regularity will tend to collapse upon pressure is placed upon it for control purposes. What is fantastic about this law is that it is both true and unexpected. My first encounter with Goodhart's Law relates to the use of the accounting statistic EBITDA that was used widely in the 80s for debt valuation in lieu of focusing on earnings per share. However, EBITDA statistical value quickly became less interesting once management started manipulating the statistic after they realized that investors were using it in their valuation process. Charles will be speaking about his book, The Great Demographic Reversal, which highlights the deflationary impact of Chinese workers joining the global economy. Charles observes that this Chinese inclusion is a one-time phenomenon and can't happen again. Sadly, the implication is that there will be less growth and potentially disruptive inflation. Minaj Pradhan is the founder of the independent macroeconomic research firm Talking Heads Macroeconomics and is the co-author of The Great Demographic Reversal. And I've asked Minaj to continue the conversation. Our second topic today is cancel culture. Our speaker is Alan Dershowitz, who is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law Emeritus at the Harvard Law School. Alan has just recently released his latest book entitled Cancel Culture, uh, The Latest Attack on Free Speech and Due Process. Cancel culture is having a debilitating impact in conversations on campus and off. Alan will speak to how bad the problem is and I hope what we can do about it. Our third topic relates to women's conflict at work. Our speaker is Andy Kramer, who is a tax partner at McDermott Will in Chicago. She and her husband, Alton Harris, have published a book entitled, It's Not You, It's the Workplace, Women's Conflict at Work and the Bias that Built It. Andy will be speaking about her book and how to minimize the negative impact of female bias in the workplace. Our next two speakers will be focused on the mortgage and corporate bond markets. The first speaker in this segment is Lori Goodman, who will be speaking on the current state of the U.S. mortgage market. Lori is currently working on housing finance policy with the Urban Institute. From 1993 to 2008, Lori was head of global fixed income research and manager of U.S. securitized products research at UBS, which was ranked first by institutional investor for 11 years. I met Lori 30 years ago as I'm a very good friend and work colleague of Lori's husband, Mark Perlin. Our final speaker today is Amna Levy, who is a managing director and head of portfolio and balance sheet research at the credit rating agency Moody's. COVID has disrupted the economy in ways that we have not seen previously, with many businesses having absolutely no revenues at all for long periods of time. Needless to say, that was not in the forecast. That said, with the vaccine on the way, we should expect many of the hardest hit industries to make a quick rebound. 
I'm interested in hearing about how corporate credit will do in the year ahead. All right, uh, that is today's session. Before we get started, I wanted to mention that since our last program, uh, my dad, Ira Bernstein, passed away peacefully on Monday, December 21st. He was 85 years old. Uh, my dad died from Parkinson's. Uh, the disease ravaged him slowly and then suddenly, and in the last few weeks of his life, he was unable to function. Uh, the game was up. Uh, my dad was born in Chicago in 1935 and practiced cardiology and taught at Northwestern University Medical School, uh, where he was on the faculty for over 50 years. My dad had a great sense of humor and loved to tell jokes. His patients adored him. My dad was an affectionate, caring, and talented physician. My dad was both interesting and an interested person. He was extremely well-read and took advantage of every conceivable cultural opportunity available. His intellectual interests have fueled my own development, and for that I will be forever grateful. Uh, my parents were happily married for 63 years. They met when my mom was a freshman and my dad was a sophomore at Northwestern University. My uh, dad had missed class for uh, Rosh Hashanah and asked my mom for the notes on uh, the rest is history. The relationship was a very loving uh, and benefited everyone, especially the kids. As he approached the end, I asked my dad if he wanted to have a Zoom call that was a celebration of his life, and he said he wanted to do it. During my dad's last week, while he was fully mentally engaged, we held the event with his friends and family. Um, if you are a friend of my family, I encourage you to check out the event. It is on the What Happens Next website, and a link will be emailed to you after today's program. Uh, if you are not uh, a friend of our family, I still think you may want to peruse the session. Uh, this is not a funeral, as the relevant individual is still very much alive and participating. What makes the session truly incredible is the love and joy. A living celebration allows the family, friends, and members of the community to get closure in a very positive way. One of the speakers on the call remarked, I have never been on anything like this before. It is fantastic. Why don't we always do this? Um, who knows, maybe we will. I dedicate this week's program of what happens next to my dad. Um, our first speaker today is Charles Goodhart. Charles is an emeritus professor at the London School of Economics. Charles, please go ahead. Larry, um, what happened to your father is going to happen to a very much larger number of all of us. Medicine has not managed to cure the neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and dementia. My elder brother died of Alzheimer's about four years ago, and my wife already has dementia. So this is going to happen to a very large number, which is one of the reasons why deficits and debt are going to grow larger. But what happens next, uh, more generally, is that inflationary pressures are going to bound back again after the COVID pandemic has been beaten by the vaccines. Now, that may seem odd, considering how the pressures uh, for the last 30 years have been disinflationary. But the disinflationary pressures have largely occurred because of trends in globalization and in demography. Globalization <clears throat> led to disinflation because mobile production could move out to the low-wage countries like China and Eastern Europe. And this had three effects. Not only meant that the production of these tradable goods became cheaper, it provided this stick whereby employers domestically could hold down wages at home by threatening to move abroad if wage pressures became too high. It also meant 
that there is a shift from manufacturing to services where labor is less well organized. Besides globalization, there was a very beneficial uh, movement in demography uh, where the baby boom immediately after World War II led to a surge in the working age population from 1965 onwards, which is just beginning now to turn around. Meanwhile, the decline, the very sharp decline in birth rates that occurred immediately thereafter uh, meant that, that there was a much larger participation of women in the working age population as actual producing workers. And the more workers there are as a share of the population, the more deflationary the, or disinflationary the world becomes. Because you don't employ a worker unless the value of their production is expected to be greater than the wage that you have to pay them. So more workers are, are disinflationary, and moreover, they have to save for their retirement. On the other hand, the old were now going to be increasing share of the population, and the young consume what they don't produce. So they are inflationary almost by definition. And the, these shifts, the shift to globalization, the bringing of China and Eastern Europe into the, into the world's trading system, and the very beneficial demographic movements meant that there was an unbelievably sharp rise uh, in the available workers that uh, people with mobile production could use. In fact, it more or less doubled, or more than doubled, over the 30, 30 and 40 years from 1980 uh, to 2010. But now that's going really quite rapidly into reverse. Globalization is beginning to reverse. Uh, with the America-China uh, systemic uh, uh, competition. Uh, Brexit is another example. And indeed, the COVID pandemic has underlined the importance of having crucial industries at home. Uh, from now on, the increase in the share of the old, who are very expensive, is going to vastly outnumber uh, the increase in the working population. And in many countries, even the fastest growing, like Germany and China, the working age population is even going to shrink. So that the availability of workers is going to decline. That's going to mean that what was a positive labor shock is going to become a negative one. And that, in turn, will raise the bargaining power of labor. But that bargaining power has got so crushed with the decline in the power of private sector trade unions, which was both a symptom and a cause, that it would take some time for these trends to turn around from a disinflationary forces into the inflationary forces that we expect over the next few decades. But what then occurred was the COVID pandemic. And the policies that have been used, policies which I do believe to have been appropriate and right, were to throw fiscal policy and monetary expansion at them. The magic money tree is meant that we have monetized much of the deficits that have been generated in the last few years. Savings ratios and the availability of money to the wider population have risen to really quite extraordinarily low. And once the COVID pandemic is over, there will be, I think, a, a recovery blip which will lead to a sharp rise in, in, in inflation, 
um, and uh, will lead to an increase uh, in, in demand. It would be rather like the best analogy is perhaps the Roaring Twenties. Um, and that is likely to bring about inflation rather quicker than we had already uh, expected. Now, at that point, I'll hand over to Manoj. Thank you very much, Great. Charles. Go ahead. Um, Larry, first, uh, let me say thank you very much for sharing uh, your thoughts about your father. Uh, one of the reasons I started this independent research company is to help look after my father, who is suffering from dementia in India. And so uh, we all have these concerns on our head. I'm sure he's very, very proud of you. Um, and and I'm, I'm going to try and uh, kind of um, bring in some thoughts around that, which is part of the story here. Uh, what I'm going to try and address is what are the things that can go wrong um, with uh, the thesis that Charles and I have put together? Um, and so there are three broad uh, areas in which things can change. The, we, we don't agree that they will uh, collectively reach a point where uh, we have to change our thesis. The first one is Africa and India, where the populations are very young and will remain young for a very long period of time. However, in the current political climate, it seems impossible to import labor. And the administrative capital in both China and India is, is far too weak, uh, sorry, in Africa and India is far too weak uh, to convert themselves into countries like China. So what then about uh, automation, uh, which is the second thing that Sterona does? Uh, in, and in many cases, there's a concern that we'll run out of jobs uh, while we are arguing that we'll run out of workers. And the story is far more complicated. Um, uh, Larry, as you will know, and both Charles and I know, it's, it's almost impossible to think that robots will look after people. Uh, they don't have the emotional capacity that we need to look after the elderly, um, and the job, therefore, is a very human one. And in fact, what this means is that either the family takes care of the elderly, or we're going to need an increasing number of people from an already dwindling population to help us look after the elderly. So the demographic statistics that we get from the UN population uh, database are not frightening enough uh, because we think they do not account for the increasing number of people that will be required to look after the elderly. And therefore, we need technology to reduce the number of jobs that can be done by robots and automation. So this is not a story of substitutability for our thesis, but a story of complementarity. And the last problem that most people um, uh, have when we describe our thesis is, why didn't any of this happen in Japan? I mean, Japan has been the tip of the spear uh, as far as demographic change is concerned, and yet it has gone through a period which most people use as a blueprint for demography. And I would argue, um, uh, as we have made the point forcefully in, in a book, that Japan's argument cannot be used as a blueprint for the global economy because almost everything about the global economy is different. Number one, when Japan started aging, China was disinflating the rest of the world. It was impossible for Japan to stop these disinflationary forces at its border. So like the rest of the economies around the world, it imported disinflation and it imported falling interest rates. And you can see that uh, in this unique research that we have conducted, which we think is a fresh addition to what has been done so far, in arguing that the, the Japanese corporate sector, in fact, understood this far better than analysts understand Japan. And you see this in the increasing size of the footprint as Japanese overseas production, Japanese overseas employment, and Japanese overseas profitability all increased in a straight line as the Japanese corporate sector understood that they would rather tap foreign markets with cheap labor than produce at home with expensive labor. 
The second and third things about Japan are much better known, um, and that is that the Japanese labor market actually adjusted in a very different way because Japanese employment norms don't really look favorably upon firing full-time workers. Japanese workers became increasingly part-time on payrolls. Uh, Their cost to the firm was adjusted more through workers than through employment, and more and more workers were shifted from manufacturing into services. So all of that implies that Japan is really not an impediment to our thesis and, in fact, is a red herring for those who think that demography is disinflationary. Uh, We think it's rather the opposite. And I'll use the rest of my time um, to bring up some conclusions um, that we think the, the, the world is missing. The first one, as Charles said, is that inflation is coming. Unlike the recovery after the great financial crisis, the stimulus has not gone as it did then to the banking sector. And the banking sector was more interested in protecting its balance sheet um, and not so much in lending. This time, the stimulus has gone to the real economy, to households and firms who are interested in maximizing utility and profits. And they will spend as life returns to normal. The exorbitantly high savings rate that you're seeing are the mirror image of falling velocity of money. If and when our lives get back to normal, as we fully think they will, both velocity and spending will come back. The result of that will be that the yield curve will steepen as long-term yields rise and short-term yields are kept at very low levels because central banks want to keep monetary expansion going in order to finance fiscal policy. The combination of that will mean that asset returns will be much harder to extract and this large increase in within-country inequality that we've seen will fall while across country inequality will also continue to fall. But probably the biggest change that we anticipate for the policy um, uh, space is that central bank independence will come under increasing threat. Over the last 30 or 35 years, central bankers and finance ministers have been the best of friends because interest rates have been falling and inflation has been falling, allowing people to borrow more and buy houses. If inflation rises, central banks will be forced to fight it and financial uh, markets and finance ministers will increasingly not like it, setting up a really interesting confrontation. But I'll leave my time there, Larry, back to you. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to start with the topic of Japan uh, as our first topic. Just as an aside, um, I uh, ran uh, the arbitrage Japanese fixed income business for Salmon Brothers uh, in the late 1990s uh, and lived in Tokyo. Um, and when I was there, what, um, what shocked me about the yield curve then was how low interest rates were and how flat the yield curve was and how slow the Japanese economy was, I'll call it, to return to a, a more normal interest rate environment. And, you know, the, I'll call it the great Japanese downturn occurred in the early 1990s, and we're, we're almost at the 30th anniversary of it. So um, you, you mentioned that the world was benefiting from these Chinese deflationary pressures. But when I was in Japan in 1998, um, the rest of the world had yet to really experience the Chinese deflationary pressure. Japan was already in the heart of it. I I think one of the great interesting aspects about Japan was it appeared that Japan was doing quite poorly. Um, But in in your book, you mentioned that, in fact, Japan had, when you take inflation out of it, Uh, it's been growing at something like a 2% clip for the last 20 years. How should we think about 
uh, the Japanese economic performance, and as it ages, how does that productivity of the, um, I'll call it the older worker, play itself into some of those productivity statistics? Namely, does that mean that the Japanese productivity of, of 2% per annum that they've clocked uh, is actually incredibly impressive given the age and demographic aspects of its society? So I'll jump in for this first one. I'm, I'm sure Charles will want to add a few things as well. Um, you know, as you'll know from Japan, nothing about Japan is, is simple. Uh, but, but let me try and work through this. Indeed, Japan has to be seen through two sample periods. The decade after the asset price bust is, in, is, is a very, very, very singular experience, which uh, after the great financial crisis, many economies in the advanced world have also faced. And that truly was a lost decade. There's no doubt about it. But the period after that, um, uh, there's been a lot of literature in Japan also titled Divine Wind uh, or Productivity uh, as attributes that allowed Japan to escape this bust. And it was a mix of the two. So if you look at Japanese productivity afterwards, what you see is that growth has been 1%, while the labor force has been shrinking by 1%. And that 2% gap in between is actually something that the advanced economies would right now bite your hand off if you gave them a shot at it. Most of them have underperformed Japan pretty significantly. And if you look at the services sector now, um, the, the BOJ has probably the most boring title for an exciting report called the Report on Economic Activity and Prices. <laughs> and what they've outlined very clearly in there is, is very differently from uh, what manufacturing had achieved, which is to reduce the stock of capital and move people onto the services sector, thereby increasing productivity in manufacturing. What the services sector is seeing now is increased automation with an unwillingness to pass on price increases uh, to their customers. So you're really getting productivity uh, with an entrenched uh, disinflationary uh, process that has been handed down from China. Um, and that is something that I think uh, 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 explains Japan's interest rate performance, that the first period, that first decade was really a deflationary shock. But after that, Japanese interest rates, if you look at debt servicing costs versus the rise in debt in Japan, it is exactly the same picture whether you draw it for Italy, whether you draw it for the United States, or most parts of the advanced world. Another interesting thing about Japan was they did not import um, young people from the rest of the world to kind of buttress their demographic problem. Um, instead, corporations... Uh, and usually the most productive Japanese corporations, set up plants all over Asia, particularly in China. How should we think about the decision of corporate Japan to take advantage of this uh, new labor market to produce goods not only for Japan but for the rest of the world and to improve their uh, long-term uh, profitability? So again, I have a small comment here, and I'd, I'd love to hear what Charles has to say as well about this. What we give actually a particular amount of importance to exactly what you're talking about, Larry, which is that in Japan, uh, this concept of OFDI, overseas FDI, has actually been seen very negatively as something like a brain drain um, and Japanese corporates almost being looked, looked upon as traitors for abandoning Japan. We don't think that's the case at all. We thought what the Japanese corporate sector saw was a very difficult environment with very expensive labor. And at the same time, they saw this giant tsunami of Chinese disinflationary uh, labor integrating into the global economy. And they said, why not? Why should we look at a very difficult profitability scenario? Why not take advantage of China, North Asia, Poland, Brazil, 
Um, and that's exactly what they did. So they were acting rather than the, the picture that is painted of the Japanese corporate sector, that they were debilitated by this dis- deleveraging at home. It wasn't that at all, I think, is that, of course, they had uh, leverage that they wanted to get rid of, but they acted very rationally, very globally, and in a profit-maximizing sense to relocate their industries to the more dynamic and cheap parts of the, of, uh, the global labor supply. Um, and that's how they protected their profitability and still came out on top. Charles, uh, anything that you'd like to add to that? Well, one point that I would make is that uh, with a retreat from globalization, and onshoring coming back in place of offshoring, uh, that we actually do expect the very poor productivity record of most other advanced economies in the last decade or two to improve because investment will come home rather than be done in the low-wage areas. And with more investment in order to keep down unit labor costs and reduce the need for the scarce labor at home, we think the productivity will rise. Indeed, it will have to. But we doubt whether the productivity rise will be enough to offset the decline in the uh, growth in the working age population. Let me uh, bring in uh, China for as the, as the next big topic. Um, the, at the core of your, of your new book relates to the, the one-time phenomena associated with bringing the Chinese rural and uh, now urban worker into the global economy and that this is a, a one-time phenomena. Um, can you just, in its most broad strokes, explain um, what the implications were for, I'll call it the G7 manufacturing uh, that was crippled by bringing the Chinese workers online into, as a competitor? And, and then, it, varied a bit, what, what, it varied a bit from country to country, and it, it very badly adversely affected Italy, while actually Germany got away scot-free, because what the Chinese needed to buy was cars and, and machine tools, which Germany specialized in, and what China produced was cheap shoes, cheap clothes, cheap sort of products of the kind that Italy made. So it wasn't actually co- common among all countries. But as a generality, uh, what happened was that manufacturing shifted to China away from the advanced economies. Um, and the, those um, manufacturing sectors uh, where China had a particular advantage, uh, the, the, the offshoring was greatest. Um, and that is particularly true, of course, in America as well. There's a very good paper by Pearson Schott on all of this. So one quick thing to add here is there was a particular friction in the, in the global economy that made some of this possible. If you, if, you, if you look at what happened exactly the way Charles is describing it, a lot of the manufacturing processes were shifted onshore onto China. And um, the IMF printed a one-time report, uh, I've never seen that repeated before, uh, afterward rather, uh, in which it, it, it outlined a absolutely gigantic subsidy that the Chinese administration gave to firms setting up in the Pearl River Delta. So the idea was clearly, don't export, come and set up shore, uh, a shop on our shores and, and we'll help you produce for the rest of the world. However, the Chinese uh, policymakers did not allow financial capital to access its financial markets. 
So what they could do by stopping the flow of capital at its borders, uh, something that's known as breaking the impossible trinity to, to those of us who do economics, is that they could set interest rates um, uh, locally in order to encourage further investment, and global interest rates would not be equilibrated. So physical capital was allowed to flow into China uh, to take advantage of extremely benign borrowing costs, but financial capital flows could not do the same. So you created this two-world structure in which China had a very unique equilibrium at home, um, and the global financial markets were not allowed to reflect adequately what was happening uh, on the physical side. So that investment in the advanced economies fell, and investment in China went up very, very, very strongly. But it's the advanced economies that set interest rates globally. So interest rates had to fall um, uh, in the rest of the world. And savings ratios in China were extraordinarily high, uh, in part because uh, the state provided virtually nothing in the way of pensions, um, and the Chinese expectation of life was rising, and so the Chinese population saved at uh, very, very unfavorable rates which were forced upon them by the government. One of the uh, core theses of your book is that um, this is a, a one-time uh, Chinese demographic Sorry. benefit that uh, that will um, slow down. And I'm just wondering, uh, just to push back a little bit, is that you know current productivity of a Chinese worker uh, is still a, a small fraction of a Japanese, American, or German worker. And you know, with time and with education, uh, that Chinese worker could be nearly as productive. Uh, as 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 a a G3 worker, um, and given that room, does that allow for the potential for increasing productivity and increasing uh, supply, even with the, the demographic challenge? Well, the demographic challenge is particularly marked in China, and maintaining the one-child policy for as long as they did was one of their few really major economic mistakes. Uh, and it's going to mean that the Chinese population is going to cut down, and they've already had most of the internal migration that that, that uh, can be expected. And indeed, a great deal of the leveling up uh, has already in wages has already occurred. And we've got a table in our book which shows that back in uh, I think it was 1990, uh, an American worker uh, received something like 35 times the wage that the average Chinese worker did. By the time we get to 2019, that 35 times have fallen to seven times. In other words, it has already been cut uh, by a factor of five uh, within uh, 20 years, which is a really quite remarkable shift. And one of the reasons why world inequality has actually f fallen over this period, in part because there are so many more Chinese and there are uh, Americans or almost anybody else. Um, so yes, there is more room, but given the uh, dramatic turnaround in the availability of labor in China that it's on its way, um, I think that the idea that they uh, will increase their share of world exports, which have risen really quite dramatically over the last 30 years, and is, is really rather unlikely. So what, one, one small thing, if I may, a very small one, is that the, the, 
I think the, the Chinese economy benefited dramatically by this influx of physical capital. Um, the, the structure of foreign direct investment was that you formed uh, partnerships with a local Chinese company, and that allowed for significant transfers uh, of technology and human capital um, and the way of managing things, uh, you know, what we call total factor productivity across to the, the, the Chinese counterparts. But that flow has slowed down quite dramatically. Of course, China is making great strides in things like power grid technology. They're going ahead in green tech. Um, but, but I think overall, the speed at which you are pushing new tech um, and new forces of innovation into China have slowed down a lot. They have to depend a lot more on homegrown uh, uh, increases, and they've done so very successfully in many parts. But the process is not as automatic. Um, and I think that's why the catching up story over here, as Charles said, whether it's from a local point that, you know, you have to generate the certain greater amount of productivity that you mentioned, Larry, in order to just take care of your own population or try and import it from somewhere else. Both those processes actually have a few more challenges in their way rather than that one very simple linear dramatic catch up that we've seen so far. Another aspect of the story is it's about uh, young people being productive and joining the global economy. And um, the last two decades has been the story of the Chinese entrance. And then the next question is, is well, where are the world's young people going to be next? And in my mind, I can see three places, Africa, the Arab world, and India. And um, how should we think about the integration of the Hindu, Muslim, and African worker? And to what extent do we expect a movement of people, immigration, um, out of these three locations to Europe, uh, the United States, and elsewhere where they can be most productive? And what will that mean? I think that the answer to that one is it's politically, at the moment, unthinkable. And the amount of migration at present uh, is far too small to really make a significant change to the demographic trends that are clearly underway. And raising that immigration against the wishes of the majority of most countries' domestic population is just, I think, politically unfeasible. A, whole, a, a, a very large proportion of what you might describe as populist politics uh, has been anti-immigrant. Um, and that is one of the reasons why the increase in inequality and the stagnation of real wages uh, in many of the advanced economies has not led to a political resurgence on the left. It's led to a very resurgence on the right. And that has been because the workers see, uh, rightly or wrongly, to some large extent wrongly, uh, the increase in immigration as a threat and one of the causes to their own uh, relatively poor wage increases. It's, it's, it's polit politics trumps economics in this in this respect, I'm afraid. And do you think that we'll be able, and will we be able to get the, you know, the Indian, the Pakistani, the Bangladeshi, the um, multiple African workers um, to participate in the global economy? Will corporations be able to take advantage of it? Will these local economies be able to balance it? I think it was a complete shock. I, I think if I'd asked you 40 years ago, um, do you think it's possible that China could? explode and take over, become the largest GDP country in the world, I think 
um, all of my friends would have said that's inconceivable. Is it, is it possible or conceivable that Africa or India or um, the Muslim world could rise to the occasion and become a very productive element of the global economy? Well, remember that um, China was the leading country in the world for millennia, really up till about 1800. They've got a very, very uh, ancient, uh, well-run system. One of the great questions of history is why didn't China take over the world when they were so far ahead? Um, And again, the point that Manoj has made rightly is that what you really need for growth uh, essentially are two key issues, governance and education. Uh, The Chinese and Eastern Europeans were generally pretty well educated, um, and they had an effective centralized government, which was driving forward single-mindedly to try and get economic progress. Um, You cannot say that about Africa. Alas, one of the countries which had the brightest future economically in Africa was Ethiopia. Look what has happened to Ethiopia in the last month. And that, I'm afraid, is an absolute straight example uh, of the problems that Africa faces. Again, it's politics. Larry, take a look at it like this. I mean, if you, this is something that we wrote in the book as well, right? If you if you look at the the population of Africa, the population of India, um, they, they they're very similar. Uh, India's got significant problems between the center and the state. Um, um, there's a lot of friction there. We saw that when the VAT laws were passed. But what what Africa has is even more serious issues. Is they got more than 50 states for the size of the population that India has, which means 50 different national policies. Um, and coordinating that to have a coherent response, like you were saying, instead of exporting labor, why not import capital, produce, and then re-export the, the, the final product back into the advanced economies, which is what you were mentioning. The, the problem is that coordination, the, the way the Chinese policymakers went about it in a single-minded fashion, getting state-owned enterprises to rise to the challenge to aggressively uh, attack uh, capital formation, that's something that's incredibly hard to provide. If you look in the Indian economy, the impetus has been on private capital. Now, don't get us wrong. We, we, we are very optimistic about India. We, we, we think that there's about a third of the countries in Africa who have actually standards of uh, doing business which are better than even China. And they will do well over a period of time. They will attract capital. They will grow. And the advances will be dramatic. However, the issue is China was growing at a time when the advanced economies had a very, very good progression of their own. And so it received a lot of backing in terms of strong growth, strong consumption, which allowed it to go at, uh, bound uh, by leaps and bounds. What India and Africa will, re- will need is probably to be three times as effective as China to um, you know, compensate for what's going on in the rest of the world while not getting the same amount of consumption support um, that China received. So it's a very different animal going forward. And I think while they will do very well, whether they'll be able to offset the, the aging problem in such a huge part of the world, which dominates global growth right now. That's the part to us that seems very difficult to, to try and get any confidence in. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Charles and Minaj. Um, we now are going to turn uh, to Rick Banks to introduce Alan Dershowitz and Andy Kramer. Uh, Rick, you have a second? Go ahead. Thank you very much, Larry. It's a pleasure to, to be here with you. Um, 
Let, let me start, though, to pick up on Larry's earlier comments to, to just say just one word about Ira Bernstein, who, who I'd never had the, the great good fortune of meeting, uh, but I do know his son, and from what I know of him, he certainly provided a model to emulate uh, as both a father and a professional. So uh, his, his spirit is with us. Uh, our first speaker of uh, this segment is Alan Dershowitz. Uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, uh, is an emeritus professor from Harvard Law School. Uh, he was a faculty member when I was there as a student in the early 1990s. Uh, he taught at Harvard from 1964, amazingly, until 2013. Although I never took a class with Professor Dershowitz, uh, he was widely known among all the students, both those who were in his class and those who were not. An accomplished scholar, he is in fact better known to the public for his wide-ranging involvement in high-profile criminal cases and his engagement with public issues. Too many cases literally to list uh, and too many public issues to list as well. Let it suffice to say that as a law professor and as an intellectual, he is fearlessly, one might say relentlessly, engaged the issues of the day. He is the author of dozens of books, and he has never been hesitant uh, to call the facts as he sees them, to speak the truth as he sees it, even when it puts him on the opposite side of uh, former allies or former friends. Uh, he is a model of intellectual courage. Alan Dershowitz, uh, I turn it over to you. Well, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I don't think my mother could have written one as, as good as that one. I appreciate it. Uh, let's start with a little bit of history. We're experiencing the second bout of cancel culture in my lifetime. The first bout has the familiar name of McCarthyism. I remember it well. I was at Brooklyn College in the 1950s when McCarthyism was coming to an end but still had residues uh, in college where I was. Um, people were accused of being associated with communism, of being red or being pink, and the accusation alone was enough to get you on lists, whether it be the um, uh, list that kept you off a television, the list that kept you out of Hollywood, uh, the list that kept you from getting jobs and employment. Even the Harvard Law Review had a list, and two people who made the Harvard Law Review, based on their grades, were kept off because they had refused to answer questions in front of the House on American Activities Committee. Um, and uh, everybody understood back then that McCarthyism posed a danger to free speech, to due process. And the new McCarthyism, which is now called the cancel culture, is in many ways worse, in some ways not as bad. Let's start with not as bad. Not as bad, the government isn't behind it the way the government, at least members of the Senate, were behind the cancel culture of McCarthyism. But it's much worse because of the social uh, networks and because of the media and because the people behind the cancel culture are young, often college students, many of them who will be our future leaders. Some are now in the editorial rooms of the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN, and they're applying cancel culture uh, quite uh, broadly to their uh, political enemies. And cancel culture today is a cancer on our society, and it's malignant, it's growing, it's getting worse. Um, it endangers freedom of speech uh, on campuses. 
It endangers due process if you're accused, you're guilty. I wrote another book recently called Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of uh, Me Too. And it also endangers meritocracy because part of cancel culture is identity politics. And that is, you are judged not by the quality of your character, but by your identity, exactly the opposite of what Martin Luther King said in his dream speech, which I was at back in 1963 when I was a young uh, law clerk. And so the dangers are great. And you hear from some uh, on the left that there's no such thing as cancel culture. It's a contrivance of the right to try to delegitimate the hard left. No, it's real. And in my book, Cancel Culture, I have a list of people who have been canceled. Um, and you can check it out. And everybody knows people on the list. Some of them are appropriately condemned. Some are condemned without any form of due process. I will give as a perfect example my own case. I was canceled by the 92nd Street Y, a venue in which I spoke for 25 years. I was the second most popular speaker after Elie Wiesel, and I was supposed to speak about my book, Defending Israel, to a predominantly pro-Israel Jewish audience, but the 92nd Street Y canceled me, said I could never speak there again, because they said I was falsely accused of having a sexual encounter with a young woman who was friendly with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, I categorically disproved it through her own emails, where she admits she never met me, her own manuscript, where she lists the people she had sex with and says not me, her own uh, interview with the FBI, where she names the people she had sex with, but not me, an interview with a journalist where she was shown pictures of people and identify those she had sex with, not me, a full investigation by the former head of the FBI concluded that I had never met her or anything like that. And the 92nd Street Y said they believed me when I said I've never had sex or any sexual contact with anybody other than my wife during the relevant time period, but it didn't matter whether I was innocent or guilty because I was accused. And being accused was enough to cancel me. I was not only canceled by the 92nd Street Y, I was canceled by Temple Emanuel, the largest temple in New York, and by a distinguished high school that had invited me to speak to their Jewish students about how to confront anti-Zionism on campus, and they canceled me, saying they don't believe it at all, but they didn't want trouble. They didn't want controversy. And so the fear of controversy, the fear of trouble, the fear of yourself getting canceled doubles and multiplies the impact of cancel culture. So I wrote my book. I didn't write it as a defense of myself. I can defend myself in the court of public opinion. I have access to the media. I can write books. But there are many who can't. And the cancel culture, coupled with the Me Too movement, has caused suicides. It has caused depression. It has caused many people to be falsely accused. Some people have been appropriately accused. But there is no defense. There is no due process. There is no way of fighting back. The quality of what goes on on college campuses today has been substantially diminished by the advent of cancel culture. And students are not given access to the diversity of ideas that was common when I taught at Harvard for 50 years. Today, speakers are not allowed to express certain views. And let me talk about just extreme cases. A case recently of a 15-year-old girl who was kind of emulating some of the rap songs she had listened to and used the N-word in a tweet once uh, in a way that is used commonly by rap singers. She really didn't know what she was doing. When it was brought to her attention, 
she apologized, she joined Black Lives Movement, she became a strong supporter of racial equality, and nonetheless, her acceptance at the University of Tennessee was withdrawn. The school said, unless you withdraw it, we will withdraw it for you. And so her life was ruined. Her dream to go to Tennessee, her dream to be a cheerleader, was destroyed by cancel culture. She was canceled because classmates of hers sent that tweet around and told everybody to cancel her and write to the university. Cases like this are now rampant. People are canceled because of mistakes they made when they were 15 years old or mistakes they made once in their career. Uh, and distinguished careers are ruined. And it not only affects those people, it affects their audiences. So when you can't listen to uh, great opera conductors or singers or others, uh, you lose as well without any semblance of a real due process. And so I think the danger is that cancel culture will become the American culture, the way McCarthyism was in danger of becoming the American culture. A big difference is that when there was McCarthyism, people were fighting back. There were people on the left who were demanding due process and who were demanding free speech. Today, people are not, for the most part, fighting back against cancel culture for fear that they will become involved in the cancel culture. They will become canceled. And so I'm going to continue to fight against the cancel culture. I will continue to write against it. I will continue to support those elements of the Me Too movement, which go after people who are provably predatory and provably guilty. But I will fight against the denial of due process, the denial of free speech, and the denial of meritocracy. Thanks. Thank you, Alan. That was terrific. Um, Thanks for that. There's there's a lot there. Let me let me start off with one question that that is uh, at the top of mind, which is, Alan, I'm trying to understand how do we explain the emergence of cancel culture. It's easy to look back and understand the emergence of McCarthyism, right? You cannot. Uh, you know, you, we might be opposed to McCarthyism, but we can understand where it came from, why it came about uh, in the midst of the, of the communist threat. But how do we explain where cancel culture came from now? How is it that we find okay. ourselves in this? It's a great question. It's a great question. I think it comes from the deep divisions that we have in our country. Uh, today, there's no nuance. There's no middle ground. There's no center approach. Uh, today, you pick sides. Red Sox or Yankees, you can't be in between. You can't say, I like the Red Sox. Sometimes they do some good. The Yankees, hey, they've had some great hitters. You're either a Red Sox fan or a Yankee fan. Today, the choice between the hard left and the hard right is driving people to basically choose sides. And when you choose sides, you know the truth, capital T. And if you know the truth, what do you need dissenting opinions? And there's now, for the first time in my lifetime, an actual academic discipline that is developing for arguing against the First Amendment, arguing against freedom of speech, saying free speech is a patriarchal, colonialist, capitalist imposition uh, by the right on the left. And we know the truth. Why do we need dissenting views? We know that when a woman accuses a man, she's telling the truth and he's lying. Why do we need trials? Why do we need due process? So it's a manifestation of the growing intolerance of nuance, the growing intolerance of opposing points of view, and of course, the growing influence of social media. And how do we, how, how disappointed should we be in 
the uh, university leadership or institutions more generally and how they never, culture. never disappointed, never disappointed by university leadership because I never expected anything of them. So I can't be disappointed. The university leadership is exactly at behaving as I expected they would in a cowardly fashion, the way they reacted mostly to uh, McCarthyism. They're interested in keeping things together. Uh, take, for example, what happened at Harvard. A very distinguished professor named Ron Sullivan, friend of mine, uh, taught at the law school, teaches at the law school. The first African-American, along with his wife, used to be called master, now dean of Winthrop House, one of the great colleges, the old colleges at Harvard, very distinguished dean. But he dared to represent, for only a month, Harvey Weinstein. As a result of that, some radical women in his uh, house said that they didn't feel safe with him present. First of all, it was a lie. They were just lying. Of course they felt safe. He had previously, a year earlier, representing a New England Patriot player who had, in cold blood, murdered two people in gangland-style killing. Nobody felt unsafe when he represented them. But when he represented Harvey Weinstein, they claimed to feel unsafe. They were lying. And, and I use my language carefully. I don't treat students as young kids. I treat them as adults. And when a 19 and 20 year old says, I am afraid, uh, I don't feel safe. I look at them in the eye and I say, you're not telling the truth. You do feel safe. But you learn that the words I don't feel safe have now become a mechanism for imposing your will and censoring. And what happened? There was a petition to remove him, not to rehire him as dean. And what did the administration do? It caved. And it didn't rehire him as dean. Now, people like Noah Feldman, my colleague at Harvard, said, hey, Alan, what are you saying? He wasn't fired. He just wasn't rehired. And I wrote back to Noah and said, what if they had discovered he was gay or a Muslim or in the 1930s discovered he was a Jew and didn't rehire him? Would you make a distinction between not rehiring and firing? Of course not. So administrators, faculty, cowards all uh, have refused to stand up to the crowd, the bullying crowd of 19, 20, and 20 year olds, egged on by bullying professors, um, many of whom have been very radical over the years and used the classroom as a podium for not teaching students how to think, but propagandizing them about what to think. And so it's a deeper problem at universities, but I never could be disappointed by university administrators because for 65 years, in the college and university business, I've never expected anything much from university administrators. Occasionally, when you get a university administrator who has courage, like Larry Summers, he too gets fired and cancer. Right, right. But even, even if we don't expect the university administrators to take a stand, why don't the faculty, if for no reason other than self-interest and the recognition that they might be next, why don't they take a stand and say, well, you put your finger at this is anathema to all that we should stand for as a university. Why don't they do that? You put, you put your finger on it. Um, in, again, 65 years of being in the adult world, I've never met a less courageous group of people than tenured faculty. Tenure just doesn't work. Faculty members want to be loved by their students. They want to get high ratings, teaching ratings from their students. And you know how you get high ratings from your students? The way Elizabeth Warren got high ratings from the students never ever saying anything controversial, telling the students exactly what they want to hear, confirming their pre-existing views, 
teaching the same every year, telling the same jokes every year, never getting involved in controversy, and you get the highest ratings. I used to get the highest ratings at Harvard Law School, and so I started taking controversial positions, and mostly out of class, not in the class. In the classroom, I was always the devil's advocate. But when my pro-Israel advocacy outside of class became well-known, groups of students started giving me zero evaluations. I mean, zero in knowledge of the subject, zero in ability to articulate my views, zero in availability outside of the classroom. The dean called me in one day and said, this is ridiculous. There's no professor at Harvard that's more available to students. You take every student that you have for lunch, you invite them over to your house for dinner, your door is always open, and you get zero for availability out of class. I said, don't you understand? They have a, a group that has said, give Dershowitz all zeros, and that will knock his student evaluations from perfect fives down to 3.8 because he'll have 10 or 15 zeros. And so students use uh, teacher evaluations as weapons against the faculty. And the faculty, who for the most part lack any courage or any willingness to stand up to students, simply go along. At the faculty dining room, they talk about it, and they rail against it. But when it comes to making public statements, forget about it. You cannot count uh, on tenured faculty members me, to show courage. Let me, let, let me just insert there, though, as, as a faculty member uh, who has tenure, um, we know that teacher ratings or student ratings don't really affect one's life. If you have tenure, oh. Uh, the ratings don't really affect your life in any material way. So it doesn't, that's not feeling like the I, real I, answer. I fundamentally disagree. If you have tenure at Harvard, it may not affect your life. But if you have tenure at Minnesota and want to go to Harvard, it affects right, your but life. But How, did Elizabeth, Warren, How did Elizabeth Warren get her job at Harvard? She had not published any significant scholarship. She got her job at Harvard because she was the most highly ranked teacher. So teacher evaluations do matter. Teacher awards do matter. Uh, teacher awards matter in terms of getting into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and other evaluations. And it's not only teacher evaluations, it's your general approval. As a teacher, I've gotten many teachers have told me, law school teachers, that they haven't been overtly punished, but they just subtly were told you're no longer teaching first year students because you're too controversial and the students feel unsafe when you talk about certain subjects. Let me give you an example. A professor friend of mine taught criminal law for years. He spent the whole summer a few years ago finding any casebook, criminal law casebook, that never mentioned the word rape because he didn't want to teach it because he knew that as a white male, there's no way he was going to be able to teach rape without getting completely attacked for expressing any views that were in any way out of the political mainstream. And he didn't want to skip it. So we looked for a book that didn't include it, and he found it, and he was so thrilled. And he taught the whole criminal law class without mentioning the word rape, and he got very good student evaluations, and he, and he continued to teach first-year students. But uh, that's what's happened today. Uh, you cannot take positions in the classroom, even as devil's advocate, that expose you to this kind of colony and, and cancellation. Wow. So I'm almost hesitant to ask, is, is there anything we can do to move beyond this, this morass that we're in? Yeah, yeah. Keep having programs like this and keep emboldening teachers to say what they think. Uh, many teachers agree with me. They call me, they email me, always mark confidential. And often they'll call me with a whisper. 
I've had the same experience even before cancel culture when I would speak on college campuses about Israel. I remember going to Ohio State and speaking to a thousand students about Israel, making the moderate, centrist, two-state solution, pro-Palestine, pro-Israel speech. Uh, and a professor called me the next day whispering on the phone saying, thank you so much for expressing those views. I agree with it. I said, why don't you express them? Well, you know, I, I just can't. It will just hurt my career if I do. I, I was invited every year to speak to Columbia on Israel because they couldn't get a single faculty member of the entire university to make the pro-Israel case, the moderate two-state solution pro-Israel case. So they had to import every year a professor from Harvard who's prepared to make the case. Always with protests, efforts to cancel me, efforts to shout me down, prevent me from speaking. And that has become even more common. Today, of course, I will never again be invited to speak at a college campus because of the false accusation against me. And you know, if I do, there'll be students protesting rape culture, rape this, rape that, Israel, Trump. You know, if you take any, I mean, I have the trifecta. I support Israel. I've been falsely accused of sexual misconduct. And I defended Trump in front of the United States Senate. So you want to hear the perfect candidate who will never be invited to give another graduation speech, never be invited to get another honorary degree. I got 15 of them before cancel culture began, but I'll never get another one. I, I don't care about that. But what I care about is the young assistant professor who's trying to get tenure, how she or he will react to, to this reality. Alan, wow. outside of the uh, campus environment, um, how is it affecting corporate America? How is it affecting uh, government uh, positions, government speech? Um, is cancel well, culture? Let me start. Go. Yeah, let, let me start with corporate media. The New York Times, um, uh, Barry Weiss had to quit the New York Times because she was so affected by the cancel culture of their newsroom and editorial room. Uh, the editors, the op-ed editors, were fired and demoted for uh, running a piece. Uh, Hatchet Press, uh, everybody threatened to quit if they dared to publish Woody Allen's memoir. Fortunately, I helped to get my own publisher to publish Woody Allen's memoir. You know, and I was, I was uh, against him, Woody Allen, in his lawsuit uh, with Mia Farrow. I represented Mia Farrow. But the, the idea of not having his book published because he was accused 25, 30 years ago of something that he categorically denied and that the um, local law enforcement authorities said was untrue. Uh, but he's been canceled, and he can't speak on a college campus, and he can't get a mainstream publisher to publish his book. So it goes outside, and it's going to be much worse because uh, the, the corporate America will be influenced by the students who are now conducting the cancel culture on college campuses. And you know, it used to be the case that, well, the students will grow up, many students are radical when they're in college, when they get out into the real world, they'll see radicalism doesn't pay off. That's not the case anymore because many of the corporate uh, boardrooms are now dominated by people who support the skull cap. Look, for example, at the impact of Black Lives Matter. Today, you cannot be critical of Black Lives Matter. I am critical of Black Lives Matter. I support the concept of Black Lives Matter, but the um, Black Lives Matter statement of positions calls Israel a genocidal apartheid state, akin to apartheid South Africa. 
And so I've been very critical of the Black Lives Matter platform. And today, if you are critical of anything in Black Lives Matter, you get uh, canceled. Every corporation supports wholly, without question, Black Lives Matter as an organization. And so there's no room for dissent. Black Lives Matter does a lot of good. So does the Me Too movement. But every movement ought to be criticized. I think it was Eric Hoffman who once said, every cause begins as a movement, then it becomes a business and ultimately a racket. And we're seeing the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter turn from a cause to a business, and at least in the hands of some people, into an extortionate racket. Do you think um, this too will fade? And, um, you know, when you started the whole story with the Me Too movement, and then we went to, you know, Black Lives Matter and cancel culture. Um, the Me Too movement seems to have really kind of slowed down in the context of of, of this, this latter movements. What do you think, um, why do you, it, it, maybe it, it's my own supposition, not yours, that why do you think the Me Too movement ha, has slowed down? Did it go too far? And when it showed its weaknesses, there was a pushback. And do you think that same process will hold itself for cancel culture? It'll go too far. People will think it's, what they've done is maybe ridiculous or off base. And then it will naturally come to its, its normal conclusion, just as the McCarthy period, when, um, when that general said, have you no shame? Is that, is that where we're headed? And if so, what, what kind of timing do you see? Is this a five-year problem, a 10-year problem, a 24-month problem, and we'll on to the next issue? I wish I could accept your underlying assumption. I don't think the Me Too movement is slowed down. I think what they did is they exposed a lot of people, and a lot of people very legitimately right in the beginning. And so in some ways, they ran out of uh, obvious famous suspects fairly early, but it's still fully operational. Anybody who's accused of anything on a campus, in a job, uh, anywhere, uh, who's me too. I mean, look at Jeffrey Tubin. Uh, you know, what he did was stupid and foolish and ridiculous, but he didn't hurt anybody. And the idea that they're ganging up on him, uh, you know, I'm no great, great admirer or supporter of Jeffrey Tubin. He was my student. But the idea that he should be fired from the New Yorker or CNN because of, of what he did clearly shows the strength of the Me Too movement. And whenever they try to ameliorate what he did and put it in context, you get the Me Tooers out there attacking him and wanting to cancel him forever and ever. It's just uh, overreaching. Um, so I don't see it. I don't see the trend moving away the way it did with McCarthyism. McCarthyism, it moved ahead because the Cold War dissipated, because McCarthy turned out to be a fool and a cheat. And... Uh, and, and uh, of course, famously, uh, the lawyer from, from Boston who said, had you no shame, uh, put a lot of shame on him. And, and the president of the United States and some presidents of universities stood up to him. I don't see that happening today with uh, either Me Too, cancel culture, or Black Lives Matter. But, but Alan, haven't we seen on campuses, though, haven't we seen a revival of ideas now of due process and this idea that you that you really are innocent until proven guilty or or is that no we see that that's, no that's seen as a republican ploy done by the secretary of education devois uh and now she's attacked viciously and the trump administration is attacked look i'm, I'm a hillary clinton supporter i didn't vote for, for donald trump uh and and uh, but nonetheless uh the changes on campus are seen very clearly as Trump's attempt and his Secretary of Education's attempt 
undo what the Obama administration, remember that it was the Obama administration that introduced the abomination of telling universities that they would lose federal funding if they required proof beyond a reasonable doubt or proof by clear and convincing evidence instead of proof by a preponderance that a sexual allegation is true or if they allowed cross-examination of the accuser. Uh, all of those were done by the Obama administration. They were undone by the Trump administration, but I don't know what the Biden administration will do. I hope that they will, as in many areas, come down in the middle and have a more moderate and centrist position on all these issues, but I'm not convinced of that. I mean, I think that particularly if the uh, Democrats maintain or get control of the Senate uh, by a 50-50 vote, uh, the Democrats will be held hostage by the Bernie Sanders and some of the extremists and maybe uh, will have veto power over what Joe Biden would like to do. Joe Biden himself, I think, is a very reasonable man who would like to move the country back to the center and away from the extremism of, uh, of some of the both Obama views and Trump views on either side. But I don't know that that's going to happen. We'll wait and see. All right. Uh that ends our Alan Dershowitz session, and we move on to our next session with Andy Kramer. Uh, Andy is a tax partner with McDermott Will and has recently written a book with her husband on female bias. Andy, can you go ahead? Absolutely. Thank you. And um, uh, basically what uh, uh, Alan was talking about in the context of um, – uh, cancel culture is really um, a key part of it is is explicit bias and what I'm going to talk about is really implicit or unconscious bias because um, uh, that uh, uh, although there's both explicit and uh, implicit bias at work um, I've the book that I'm going to be talking about it's not you it's the workplace uh, is the second book that I wrote uh, with my husband about gender bias. And after the release of our first book, uh, Women, which was Breaking Through Bias and talks about different things that women can do in biased workplaces uh, to overcome bias without waiting for nirvana or the world to become perfect. And women would uh, tell me about their problems with their workplace relationships with other women. And they'd say things like, I get along fine with the men, but I sure hate working with women. Or my female boss, well, she's a queen bee and she only cares about herself. And in digging into this, uh, I never had that experience. And so I was really puzzled. And I found that the reaction is really reflected in many of the advice books that are out there for women. And these books assert that women are predisposed, whether it's because of nature or nurture or both, to be hostile and competitive with other women at work. And so in looking at the titles of some of these books, they have such great titles as The Stiletto in Your Back or Tripping the Prom Queen, Working with Bitches, Mean Girls Grow Up, Mean Girls, Meaner Women. All of these books, and um, I have to admit that I had to read all of them to try to figure out what they were going to say, 
basically tell women that they have to contain their inner mean girl, that somehow they have to learn to get ahead without aggression towards other women and to look within themselves to do or stop doing certain things. Well, obviously, this is not helpful at all because if hostility is really a part of our fundamental makeup, then how can women just stop being hostile? It just doesn't make any sense. But more importantly, I doubted whether this was true in the first place because I know that women and men are more alike than they are different, and no one ever says that men are inherently hostile to other men. And so what I found and what became the uh, basis for our book, It's Not You, It's the Workplace, is really that it's workplace conditions that force women into conflicts with other women. So the workplace conflicts that women do have with other women are not because there's some internally driven, uniquely feminine characteristic. But when we do have conflicts, and obviously uh, conflicts do occur, uh, many of them are because of the gendered nature of our workplaces. And what flows from the gendered workplace are really two discriminatory biases that run rampant uh, in gendered workplaces, affinity bias and gender bias. And I know that uh, uh, Alan in some of his uh, discussion uh, touched on actually some of the things that are um, associated with affinity bias, and I'll spend a minute on that. But, but before I move on, I thought maybe I should try to unpack what I just said. So gendered workplaces are workplaces where men lead and control, they privilege or advantage men, they follow masculine norms, values, and expectations. Frankly, just about every um, uh, organization uh, in the United States. And in these workplaces, women's advancement opportunities are far more limited than men's. And if they're more limited, obviously, there's more severe career obstacles that women face. Gender bias is fairly obvious. It's, it's the unconscious or implicit assumptions or stereotypes that women are somehow less talented, ambitious, or competent than men, and that women are supposed to be caregivers and not business professionals or political leaders. And the one that's got a lot more hair on it is basically affinity bias. And that's the preference that we all have for people who are like us. And our tendency is to ignore or dismiss people who have different social identities to our own. And in a gendered workplace where men are in control, uh, women are in an outgroup. And that's really because of affinity bias. And so um, in addressing affinity bias, I'd like to sort of take a little sidestep here and just say that affinity bias also comes into play in all sorts of other conflicts that can come up between women who have different social identities. And our social identities, such as our race or ethnicity, age, uh, status as to whether we're mothers, sexual orientation, sexual identity, all of those can cause workplace conflicts too. But those problems affect men dealing with men and women 
dealing with men and each other. And so I'm going to, in my six minutes here, I'm not going to talk about um, the conflicts with respect to different social identities, but I'd be happy to talk about them on the, you know, the, the, the following uh, Q&A section. So let's get back to the women's conflicts with, with other women. And it's affinity bias and gender bias force women to compete directly with each other for limited resources, opportunities, and, and the seats that there are at the leadership table. And it's because of this structural um, same gender competition that it can create a toxic environment for women who are looking to advance in their careers. Because very often, in order to get a seat at the table, a woman needs to best or beat out another woman for that spot. And in fact, when I was asked if I would serve on my law firm's management committee, um, I asked the chairman uh, which one of the two girl spots I was going to get, of which he acted very offended is to uh, advise me that, of course, there is no such thing as a girl spot. And I said, well, then, okay, I'd be prepared to stand for the management committee. And sure enough, I was put on the management committee and one of the other women was taken off. So, so much for girl seats. But in addition, in order to get ahead, as members of an outgroup, women who are in senior positions very often have to identify with the in-group, the men. And so they can distance themselves from other women, the younger women working their way up. And that's another surefire prescription for same gender conflict. And so we're not going to be able to fix this problem by telling women don't be mean to other women. What we have to do is we have to directly attack affinity bias, gender bias, and gendered workplaces. And so in order to end these conflicts, we need to focus on the cause and not the result. And so uh, basically um, in our book, we uh, talk about the issues that I've uh, set out here and um, also the social identity conflicts, but end with a chapter talking about seven steps as to what needs to be done. And I'm gonna boil that down to three, three steps for today. And the first one is building knowledge about the issues. And this is important, uh, this was Alan's point as well, uh, that you need information, you need knowledge, and in the context of gendered workplaces and bias, we need to recognize that our workplaces really are not meritocracies. And statistically, the studies show that men believe that it isn't any harder for a woman to advance in her career than it is for a man, and that is, in most cases, not accurate. And so we really need men to wake up to the reality that there is discriminatory processes at work in our workplaces, leading me to my second point, which is that we have to find ways to get subjectivity and discretion out of the hiring, promotion, uh, assignment, compensation, retention policies of organizations. And if we could get the 
um, uh, practices and policies that control the career affecting decisions right, meaning that we get rid of the uh, bias and we have more objective, fair, and uh, free bias-free decisions, that would obviously go a long way towards fixing women's hostility to other women. And then the third thing is we've got to get men in the game to talk about this, to care about this, to understand the issues. It's not a woman's issue. It's an everybody issue. It's everybody's problem. And very often, um, people's responses are, well, this is too hard. We can't possibly try to, what can I do to solve this problem? And so what I would say is that we have to sort of proceed in little bites with little small wins because over time we can have workplaces that have gender equality and that if we can end systemic gender bias, it's going to benefit everybody. It's everybody's responsibility to try to do this, even if it's nobody's fault. And so the, the studies show that the more women are in senior leadership roles, uh, the more egalitarian organizations are. And so what we really need to do is we need to get more women in leadership roles, and that will help us um, eliminate some of the conflict that women have with other women at work, uh, which truly has nothing to do with the women as women, but it, the women in gender-biased workplaces. So that's Andy, about thank as fast you. as I could do that. <laughs> that, was, that was very good. This is a quick question, though. You, one of your big take-home points, which, which I think is a good one, is that we need everyone to understand that gender bias is not a women's issue. It's an issue for everyone, right? But that, right. But that begs the question of how do you get men to care? Uh, in other words, why should men care about something that doesn't harm or implicate them? Well, that's a great way of asking the question because – one of the one of the ways that you can get men to um, uh, to be involved is very often to ask them. A lot of it is that the um, men can feel uncomfortable about the culture, but they do benefit by it. And so it's almost Alan's point about the professors not wanting to rock the boat or not wanting to, you know, if it's not broken, why should I fix it? And so one of the key things is that men need to be part of the conversation. And that's really why in writing these books about gender, I've been uh, writing them with my husband because he gets it. And uh, if we're in a group of senior leaders, mostly men and very often mostly white men, um, and if I were to try to say that men don't understand it, their eyes would roll up in the back of their heads. But if Al says to them, guys, you don't get it, they're hanging on his every word. So that's a great point. It's, it's clearly the case that, that a man might have some authority, right, on this issue precisely because people don't expect him to be invested in it. But, but it seems that it begs the question of why, again, why should men be 
uh, what's the incentive for men okay. to right. transform a system that is benefiting them and working in their favor? Okay. Uh, first of all, if um, because it's the right thing to do doesn't uh, doesn't uh, buy you a cup of coffee, I'm not going to start with that. But the studies do show that organizations that have diversity of ideas and diverse uh, people with diverse experiences are more profitable than organizations uh, that aren't. And uh, I'll give you an example. There's a, a, an interesting study of uh, uh, six black men, well, uh, it's juries, six, 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 six person juries. They're all white men or three white men and three black men. And they watch the same mock trial, and they are supposed to deliberate. And the studies show, this one in particular, very interesting, that the juries that had the black men and the white men together took longer to deliberate, were more careful about the facts, and reached conclusions that were more in keeping with the findings that were expected based on, you know, the trial as it was presented to them. Uh, and the juries that were the six white men would just finish quickly because you could, because of affinity bias, you just sort of answer each other's question. You'd kind of, you know, we're all in this together, we've got it. And so if you apply that to solving problems, if you have people with diverse backgrounds, then you're going to have an opportunity for um, uh, more creative thinking. And that's really something. Can I ask, sure, go ahead. Can I ask a question? Can I ask a question sure. about that? Okay, so I don't think that the jury studies can be extrapolated to universities or the workplace. Let me tell you why. I think in juries, it's very important to have racial um, uh, diversification to make sure that you have both black and white people on the jury because so many of the defendants are black and so many of the victims are white and their race is such a critical factor in the administration of justice on university campuses that's just not the case universities use the term diversity to eliminate intellectual diversity what they want is people that look different but think the same uh, the last thing they want are, for example, very conservative or right-wing African-Americans. The last thing they want are people from uh, rural, poor, white uh, parts of the country. The last thing they want are evangelical Christians. Okay. The last right. thing they want are people who believe in the gun culture. The last thing they want are people who have uh, sexist views or racist views that are very prevalent in the culture and so universities don't want diversity they want the appearance of diversity with the guarantee that people will think largely alike and i think that translates into the boardroom too so i don't buy the analogy between your correct citation of the racial diversity in juries and how that can be extrapolated to the university or the workplace Okay, well, I, 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 I have no opinion about how the universities work because that's not anything that I've studied. But in the context of the workplace, uh, I can tell you that 
diverse ideas and um, uh, an ability to be comfortable in expressing your views. And I'm not talking about political views around a, a, a board table. I'm talking about solving your clients or your customers' problems. That that kind of diversity does make for more profitable organizations. I agree. And so oh, I, agree um, I do think that the, uh, that the, the mock jury study does apply. But what I can tell you is that there are studies which show that when you have diversity of women and men, the women and men may or may not have different political opinions. Um, uh, you know, it, it really is going to vary. Uh, but um, uh, it is it is the diversity does provide a profit. And so if you're trying to... I think it's to... you from my, from, from my experience, the student opinions in my classes were far more diverse 50 years ago than they are now. Um, students 50 years ago, many of whom were white and male, but came from very, very diverse backgrounds, were much more extensive than the opinions that get expressed in class today uh, because of the imposition of kind of political correctness. Yes, the people who speak look different. They're women and they're black and they're gay. Uh, they were always gay, but now they're openly gay. Um, and, 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 but the dynamic is such that it hasn't in any way improved the diversity of intellectual ideas expressed. Well, in the uh, university I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with you about that. Okay. I just don't want to get hijacked with, with, sure, with sure, that sure. conversation. Um, I'd be happy to but take that conversation. And ask one you question about, sure, about go ahead. With, um, with, for, for, for women tend to bear the bulk of the child, bear, uh, child care responsibilities. Obviously, there are a few lucky of us um, people who were, who, whose husbands did at least as much, but that's pretty rare. There are a lot more single parents. There are real differences in when women are locked into inflexible child care arrangements. Yep. Um, they can't work odd hours. They can't travel last minute. There's oftentimes a lot of resentment from colleagues who are forced to pick up the additional work a lot of women lose ground during that child during that child rearing period, and that's how do you address those concerns? Okay, well, uh, that's one of the key issues and problems with the gendered workplace, which is because the expectation is that if I did it and I was able to work two thousand hours a year, then you're supposed to do the same thing, and that's really what has to change. Flexibility of workplaces is critical, not just for the advancement of women, which it is, but it's also important if you make it available for men as well, um, because then it's not viewed as a special dispensation kind of a favor. Uh, but um, we do have to have more flexible workplaces. We have to have better childcare. The United States is like at the bottom of the um, you know, in the, in the world, we are like the worst when it comes to affordable child care uh, and um, flexible workplaces. And that is a key problem. Uh, women who have conflicts with other women about child care very often, that's one of the, uh, an entire chapter in, in It's Not You, It's the Workplace, primarily because if you have a small child and you know, you're getting special dispensation, and I don't have a child, but I have, a, I have uh, something that I want to do with my life, then there can be a lot of hostility. And so we need to find ways to work that out 
as well that it ha that we have to have a more flexible work environment and we just don't it's a serious problem with covid because so many women are dropping out of the workforce because they're expected to uh, deal with their, you know, their, their professional responsibilities and very often um, the bulk of the household and child care responsibilities. It's a serious problem. Andy, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to move on to our next speaker, and that's Lori Goodman. Lori um, previously ran UBS's research business and is now at the Urban Institute, uh, and she's always focused on housing finance policy. Lori, why don't you go ahead? Thank you very much. Um, in my six minutes, I'm going to cover the mortgage markets as well as the state of mortgage borrowers and renters. The agency mortgage market, which is about 70% of the total uh, mortgage market, is functioning very well thanks to continued Federal Reserve intervention. While spreads on, mor on agency mortgages widened considerably in March as the pandemic was breaking, they quickly tightened after the Federal Reserve pledged to buy agency, agency mortgage-backed securities and treasuries in the amounts necessary to support smooth market functioning and effective transmission of monetary policy. During the last one and a half weeks of March, the Fed purchased a record $292 billion of agency MBS, 178% of the gross supply for the month. In April, the Fed purchased a similar amount. Since then, Fed purchases have tapered off but are still very high by historical standards. As a result of this aggressive intervention, secondary mortgage spreads have stabilized at or below historical levels. While secondary agency mortgage rates came down considerably, primary rates, the rates that borrowers pay, have come down more slowly. Initially, the widespread between the primary mortgage rate and the 10-year Treasury was due to the, large, to the very high number of refinance applications coupled with slower processing of many loans in the midst of the pandemic with mortgage originators working from home. As lenders have been able to operate more efficiently in this environment, the spread has come down significantly since, a, since the April wides. In fact, the last few months, as, re, as Treasury rates have increased, mortgage rates have actually declined. The non-agency mortgage market, which is about 30% of the total, has received zero Federal Reserve support and did not fare as well. As the pandemic was breaking, a number of mortgage real estate investment trusts, which own non-agency mortgage-backed securities on a levered basis, were forced to sell their positions, driving prices down further and causing further forced selling. Similarly, holders of mortgage loans that didn't qualify for agency securitizations were in a similar bind. A number of mortgage REITs with large non-agency holdings worked out forbearance agreements with their lenders and ultimately ended up with rescue packages. Equity values for these entities are roughly half of their pre-COVID levels. Production of non-agency loans with any type of expanded credit came to a halt for, for a six-month period and is now ramping up very slowly. Meanwhile, as the crisis was breaking, many in the mortgage industry feared that there'd be a repeat of the great financial crisis, as forced selling due to home price declines begat more forced selling and further home price declines. Determined not to let this happen, the um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and FHA allowed for temporary forbearance of one to four family mortgages where the borrower doesn't need to make payments for up to a year. This was later included in the first CARES Act. 
If the borrower cannot pay the foreborn amount quickly, the mortgage is extended by the number of missed payments or tacked on to the end of the life of the mortgage as a soft second. The forbearance take-up rate was much lower than many had initially anticipated. It peaked at about 8.5% and is now under 5.5%. While the forbearance policies were very helpful to existing homeowners, the pandemic has caused credit to tighten appreciably. Many lenders have put overlays on top of the, F on top of the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or FHA credit boxes requiring higher credit scores or lower debt-to-income ratios. There are three reasons for this. First, originators have less interest in working with marginal borrowers when they are swamped with refinance business. Second, the cost of servicing non-performing loans is quite high, and the likelihood of a lower-quality loan becoming non-performing is higher than pre-pandemic. And third, the GSEs and FHA charge heavy penalties when a loan is made in good faith, but the borrower requests forbearance before the loan can be sold to the GSEs or FHA. While credit, while credit overlays are the natural business response, it deprives many borrowers of the opportunity to receive mortgage credit at a time when rates are historically low. The one lost opportunity of this crisis was an unwillingness to do a universal refinancing program. While refinancing activity has been heavy, aided by property inspection waivers from the GSEs, it could have been heavier still if the GSEs had reinitiated a variant of the Home Affordable Refinance Program in effect in the aftermath of the great financial crisis. That is, the borrowers who are able to refinance are those with very high credit scores as credit has tightened. Many lower credit score borrowers have limited ability to refinance, and refinancing can be valuable in preventing defaults, more valuable for lower credit score borrowers. The part of the market I worry about the most is the rental market. I worry about it a bit less since the new CARES 2 package was passed about a week ago. Interestingly, we've done much more for homeowners than for renters. The forbearance for homeowners has been very valuable. They're able to defer the payments to the end of the life of the mortgage. For renters, thus far, we've offered an eviction moratorium. This is not a solution for either the renter or the landlord. The renter still owes the money and will be evicted when the moratorium ends. And the landlord doesn't have the money to pay the mortgage and maintenance on the property. Prior to the passage of the new CARES Act, the percent of borrowers that had not paid was running 2 to 3% less than normal, but renters were at the end of their financial rope. Having benefited from the initial $1,200 stimulus payment, the extra $600 a week, then $300 a week in unemployment benefits, and the extended period for the base benefits. However, the new act extends the $300, uh, extends the base unemployment benefit, adds $300 a week, uh, and provides a $300 a week supplement, as well as on the $600 payment. It also contains $25 billion in rental assistance to be distributed to the states. The $25 billion isn't enough to solve the problem, but it'll certainly help a lot. The real issue here is that there was an affordable housing crisis before the pandemic, and pandemic um, financing is insufficient to fix it. Um, thanks very much. Thanks, Laura. We're going to combine your questions with Emnol in a second. Emnol Levy is our next speaker. He comes from Moody's, uh, where he runs a research department. He's going to talk about COVID and corporate credit. Go ahead, Emnol. Well, thank you, Larry. Uh, first, wanted to recognize the beautiful way you and your family, Larry, were able to celebrate your father and together grief 
for the pending loss while he was still alive and present. My wife, uh, Shane, is a psychiatrist. She routinely reminds me that COVID has brought so much loss of varying degree and techniques that help us grief loss are critical in supporting mental health, self-care and resiliency. So thank you for sharing. Thank you. Um, with that, let me transition to the topic at hand. Uh, the COVID-induced recession is different than previous recessions. Uh, the financial crisis, the tech telecom downturn, originated from poorly thought through and greedy investment schemes. COVID's impact on economic activity was not a byproduct of ex excessive investor hubris. Uh, the U U.S. government's appetite to bail out effective sectors is large and not suppressed by moral hazard concerns that, say, held back the U.S. government supporting prices with a housing bust. It really is different this, this time. With the Chamber of Commerce survey suggesting that within a year, half of the 30 million small businesses will be closing permanently. U.S. government programs are providing a lifeline to struggling corporates through bolstered credit markets and bank lending not seen in previous downturns. Similar to the programs Lori referenced that provide funding and support to individuals. While U.S. corporate bankruptcy filings have increased, total filings are at a multi-year low, absolutely stunning. Market signals derived from bond markets, such as the triple B spread, suggest today's corporate credit environment is more benign now than one year ago today, before COVID. Programs such as the Fed's $120 billion monthly bond purchase program have inflated prices to the point where some corporates can now borrow at negative inflated, inflation-adjusted rates. After accounting for inflation, investors are actually paying to take on credit risk. I find this amazing. Meanwhile, well-developed models used by banks, insurance companies, and regulators to quantify expected future losses on loans have been and continue to be substantially challenged. Loans are not traded and do not generally have observable market prices. Historical relationships that were used to infer how credit environment might play out failed to prevail through COVID. For example, skyrocketing unemployment usually foreshadows drastic credit losses as consumers pull back, resulting in a lagging corporate profits and ultimately leads to insolvency and default. Not the case this time around. With stimulus packages increasing disposable income, the impact has been varied and tied to changes in behavior that in many cases will be permanent or at the very least long-lasting. Industries that rely on their customers to be within close physical proximity of one another are struggling. Cruise ships, amusement parks, dining restaurants, and downtown hotels. On the flip side, it's not only the large tech companies that are performing well, but also brokerage firms as personal savings and securities investment rates have increased. This is in stark contrast from the industries that were impacted with a tech telecom bust and financial crisis, which were used to calibrate these traditional models. With signals from credit markets likely distorted by government programs and traditional credit models not working adequately, the chilling dollar questions are, what data can be used to quantify corporate credit risk in the current environment? What's next for corporate credit and should we be worried? Taking on the first question of what data can be uh, used to describe credit dynamics in the current environment, 
We've been tracking 121 industry classifications across the globe, which is extremely granular for those of you familiar with credit markets. I find it fascinating that the rank order of industry performance has been incredibly consistent across countries. Maybe not surprising. The most impacted industries in the U.S. are also the ones most impacted in the U.K., Germany, and Japan. For example, regardless of location, New York, Miami, or London, the conference industry is impacted by COVID more than supermarkets. Holding on to that observation, there are measurable differences in industry performance across countries based on that country's sociological reaction to COVID. When our country or region is more reactive to COVID, sit-down restaurants significantly deteriorate in comparison to a country that is not particularly reactive to COVID. We found two primary sociological factors that drive COVID's cross-industry impact. First, consumer and business sentiment, which is relevant in any downturn. And second, and specific to COVID, the willingness of people to physically interact, use public transportation or go to the office. Hope furnishings were initially hit almost as hard as airlines, but have recovered. Stimulus increased disposable income and consumer sentiment, and this is coupled with the second effect, our sudden need for home offices as we distanced. Google mobility data has been extremely useful in proxying for COVID's willingness to physically interact. We use this data in quantifying credit dynamics across industries and across countries. Google measures visitor numbers to specific category of locations, such as grocery stores, parks, train stations, workplace. Let's turn to the second question. What's next for corporate credit? The speed of a mobility will really determine, or excuse me, the, the speed at which mobility recovers really will determine the answer to this question. Singapore, New Zealand, China, and until recently, South Korea have controlled the virus. And downtown office spatialization is by and large back to or surpassing pre-COVID levels. Very different from, say, the U.S. or the U.K., where workplace mobility is in the order of, say, half of what it was. While fewer than 1% of the U.S. have been administered the vaccine, Israel aims to have 25% of its population vaccinated by the end of January. Pretty spectacular. Tying this back to corporate credit, mobility will ultimately determine the relative speed of recovery for the particularly affected segments combined with a trajectory of consumer and business sentiment. Finally, should we worry? I always worry. That's what I do for a living. Our economy and the world have been substantially damaged and many industries facing years of rebuilding. The U.S. has so far skillfully averted a cataclysmic economic crisis. To quote a former colleague, Secretary Mnuchin and Chairman Powell are probably pinching themselves in disbelief. As a whole, the U.S. economy is faring incredibly well considering the pandemic. We will eventually and undoubtedly pay the bill, but by delaying the inevitable demise of many corporations, often referenced as zombie corporations, these programs keep people employed with food on the table and the overall economy functioning, allowing for time to transition resources to where they can provide most value. We will be facing elevated levels of default in 2021 and 2022. With the cross-industry corporate 
default rate looking very different from what it looked like in previous downturns. All right, let's go to Q&A for Goodman and Levy. Uh, and let's, let's start with you because you just, uh, just finished up here. Um, you started your talk uh, if you were in absolute complete shock. Triple B spreads are tighter than they were pre-COVID. Um, you talked about the Fed purchases uh, and, the, and the CARES Act. It's still absolutely stunning. How, how do you explain simply why corporate credit, particularly in, I'll call it the, the worst segment of the investment grade sector, how could it possibly be tighter? Um, and what is the market foreseeing that they've, um, they've got spreads to these levels? So right, right now, um, I, let, let me maybe start with the financial crisis. Financial crisis, the Fed wrote a new playbook where it started acquiring securities um, uh, and taking positions in the market uh, in, in a way that materially impacted prices. Uh, at the longer end of the yield curve. Generally, when the Fed sets interest rates, it sets short-term rates and hardly needs to transact in order to move the market because the market knows where it's going to go. It's different when um, uh, it, it was different during the financial crisis and it's different today in that it is taking a material position in, uh, in credit securities uh, and uh, government bonds as well. What that's done is really um, uh, increase prices, and we're seeing that increased price in the bond market uh, drive yields incredibly tight, along with having a displacement of uh, um, uh, basically investment into the uh, stock market as investors are looking for higher returns. Uh, so what we've seen is really an equating of markets across the bond market, the stock market, um, and generally traded securities. Uh, and the high stock market is indicative really of what I expect to be relatively low future returns. So we, we have a um, uh, a situation where the Fed, I expect, is going to continue to uh, uh, continue with its bond purchase program, uh, ensuring that yields are continued to be relatively low, and slowly transition once the economy really opens up and is functioning. What's uh, so different uh, about this downturn is the extreme nature of the revenue collapse for certain corporations. Uh, you know, generally, when you have a recession, maybe GDP falls by four, maybe revenues fall by 10%, 15% in the worst hit industries. Here, you've got hotels down 100, amusement um, parks down 100%. Um, and now it's just a question of reducing, you know, marginal and fixed expenses to, to see if they can last until the vaccine is widely distributed. Um, that is something that is clearly outside the models, clearly outside the historical time series. Um, but those are the types of firms that are in this game of time versus um, cash flow. 
how, how do you think about those industries that have been the hardest hit, stuff like the airlines and amusement parks? Will they survive or will we start to see defaults in these industries? And how do you think about um, the breadth and depth of the vaccination program to, to whether or not these firms will, sur will have to go bankrupt or not? Right. Uh, and can markets forecast that, in fact, oh, we are just a few weeks away and therefore they'll recap and allow the liquidity to be provided in time? Right. I, I think what we'll see is um, companies that have a more flexible business model will survive. Uh, you look at Marriott, for example. Uh, they've managed to, to get through this pretty well. Now, when I say they, I'm talking about the corporation. I'm not talking about the extremely unfortunate uh, employees who have been furloughed and effectively have to switch careers. Um, so what you're going to see is organizations that have more flexible business models being able to weather and then really be able to um, uh, really dive in once the market starts coming back. And, and it will, it'll take time, but, but the market will, will come back. Um, you also have a fair amount of uh, cash on the sidelines that is coming from private equity and other sources that is anticipating a comeback. Now, then you have some industries that are riddled with companies that are unlikely going to have a business model that is viable in the longer run. And th those are kind of the, th those zombie companies that I was referencing earlier. And what COVID has done, it's accelerated certain, certain advancements that were, it was a matter of time before, before, um, uh, before we were going to accept them, in, in, you know, aspects to remote work. Uh, uh, I could tell you that, you know, virtually I mean, every... I think, I think your point was that when this thing started, it wasn't obvious who the winners and losers were going to be. And so airlines and home furnishings had both collapsed. Um, but home furnishings took off when everyone said, you know what, I'm going to be stuck in my house for a year. I, I need new furniture. I need a new office. I need new, you know, special stuff. And quickly furniture sold out. Um, here we are at, at, I'll call it, the beginning of the vaccination part of the process. And now there'll be new winners and new losers. Um, from your angle at the corporate credit side, um, who will be the unexpected winners and losers as we transition to this vaccination period? <laughs> that's that's uh that's uh that, that's a million dollar question dollar question um, oh, i want the million yeah that's right it's a million dollars. uh I'll, I'll tell you you know what i'm seeing i'm seeing uh uh quite a I, i'm seeing a lot of transition in commercial real estate uh the use of office space uh uh you know bringing in some of the observations lori's having in terms of uh rental um, markets in the U in in New York and in, in San Francisco, for example, uh, vacancy rates have, have skyrocketed in, in residential rentals uh, as well as um, 
office leases. Uh, so, so there's going to be a material transformation that I expect will generate a, a fair, fairly robust uh, uh, transformation, right? Uh, and and th th those in industries that will be involved in that transformation, they're, they're, they're going to be benefiting. Um, I, I don't see us staying remote forever. People, you know, crave human interaction. Um, uh, but, but it's certainly not going to be what it was before, certainly not where, you know, what, what, what I see from what I'm exposed to. All right, let's bring Lori in the conversation. Lori, um, you started your conversation with uh, the incredible changes to the uh, agency markets. Uh, the acquisition by the Fed of almost $300 billion a month in mortgages is just absolutely staggering. Um, and the fact that the uh, residential market, the agency market in particular, is, uh, is well-organized and doing particularly well. Um, do you think that – how will this agency market end up? Will the Fed end up um, selling these mortgages? Will they hold them to term? Um, and then how do you expect spreads in the agency world uh, to perform over the next 12 to 24 months as the, as the Fed stops its purchases? Um. So the question, so one question is how long the Fed actually continues its purchases, and, and presumably they will be there as long as they are needed. Um, I actually, when spread, when the Fed stops its purchases, and now they're purchasing more like a little bit over a hundred um, billion a month, um, spreads will widen a little bit, but they probably won't sell. What they'll probably do is just not reinvest the runoff for a long period of time. So that way your portfolio sort of um, begins to run down simply by just not reinvesting, not reinvesting the prepayments. And obviously the Fed will stop purchasing when interest rates begin rising and prepayments slow, so it will be a slow runoff. But I would actually be surprised if they do, um, it, it, um, if they don't, if they sell any time in the near term, I would expect the most they would do is just stop, uh, is just begin to let runoff. Um, you use the term not agency mortgages. Um, some people in our audience may not be familiar with the term. Could you like define, uh, you know, what that means, who these borrowers are? And I guess the, the question I would have to it is this. These non agency mortgages have historically been held uh, by non-banks. Um, what should we um, – what – should the government be doing with these non-banks? Is it is it problematic that mortgage, you know, that some of these mortgage non-agency REITs um, values fell in half? It was a crisis. They lost some money. So what? Um, it seems to me like the non-agency mortgage market has um, done okay. Like, like, what do you want? And, and what sort of moral hazard issues should we try to think about here? Um, so, I mean, I guess. Um the non-agency mortgage market is a couple of diff is fairly disparate. It includes jumbo mortgages, and that market initially froze and then um, thawed. It, um, it includes um, sort of the expanded credit, which includes a lot of loans to self-employed borrowers, for instance. Um, that market was totally froze for about 10 months um, and then ramped up slowly. Um, it, it includes the old um, subprime securitizations or what's still left of them. Um, so the non, um, 
and not there's so there's non-agency mortgages and then non-agency mortgage-backed securities are a portion of that. Some of the jumbo mortgages are securitized. Most of the expanded credit mortgages are securitized, but not all. Some are held um, as raw loans in various types of, of portfolios. Um, obviously, it's not real. You know, there's winners and losers of, on everything. The only thing the Fed could have done that they didn't do um, was allowed for a, or for a liquidity facility for non-agency mortgages, similar to the liquidity facility for corporates. And I think that would have cushioned um, things quite a bit. It's it's sort of incredible to me that they that um, corporate credit was treated that differently than mortgage credit this time around. But um, yeah, the, the Fed can't bail out at every sector, nor should it be expected to, but mm -hmm. it should have actually um, provided some sort of liquidity facility for non-agency mortgages. Um, that would have cushioned the blow a lot. And you, you commented on renters. Um, what do you what do you think is the right public policy here for that situation? So the the renter situation is very 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 complicated because COVID nine because COVID nineteen um, sort of compounded what was already a huge affordable housing crisis on the renter side. Um, it's important to realize that rent, renter incomes are obviously a lot lower than homeowner incomes to begin with. Um, roughly about 40,000 versus about 78,000. Um, renter unemployment is generally much higher than homeowner unemployment. When you see an unemployment number, the homeowner unemployment is about 80% of that number. The renter unemployment is about 135%, and that's been magnified um, in the COVID crisis where a lot of renters are in the hardest hit industries, I, you know, accommodation, food services, et cetera. Um, I think you know you do need some sort. You do need a, more in rental assistance than what the government is currently providing. Obviously, unemployment, the unemployment benefits, and expanded unemployment benefits um, help a lot. But I do think you need a rental assistance um, program that's a lot deeper than what's there. In addition, um, you really have to address the fact that only about one out of every five renters who qualifies for housing choice vouchers, which used to be called Section 8 vouchers, gets them. I mean, there's a huge affordable housing crisis underlying the COVID situation that at some point has to be dealt with, but probably long after the crisis is over. Okay. All right. This is um, the part of the show where I try to end on a note of optimism. Um, I ask each of the speakers to speak for you know 30 seconds to a minute as to why we should think optimistically about our future. Lori, uh, why don't we start with you first. As you think about your world of mortgages and the rest, uh, what are you optimistic about? Um, I'm sort of optimistic about continued home price appreciation. Borrowers who are going to come off forbearance aren't going to have any sort of forced selling because they can move the future payments to the end of the life of the mortgages. In addition, very critically different from 2008, the amount of home equity is large and growing. Um, home price appreciation was very robust before COVID, and it's actually accelerated during COVID. So I'm very, very optimistic about the housing market. In addition, um, people are more willing to spend on housing than they were before. So, Incredible. Uh, Emma Levy, what are you excited about? Uh, well, COVID has forced financial institutions and regulators to 
recognize that while systems data and processes are often resilient to past crises, uh, it's really future emerging risks that need to be considered more thoroughly. Um, and we're seeing climate hazard and cyber risks and, and, and the like be areas of uh, focus at, uh, at many, many institutions. Uh, so, you know, crisis generally forced breakthroughs and technology advances, as we saw this with the uh, rapid speed of the vaccine development. It's also true of economics and finance. We have a, a better understanding of the breadth of sociological reactions to a pandemic and implications of risk. And while the next crisis is unlikely to originate from a pandemic, we are certainly uh, better prepared for whatever, or whatever comes. Um, COVID has provided uh, learned lessons for the need uh, to quickly access alternative data and shift modeling approaches. Uh, and this evolution of flexibility increases our resiliency uh, and improves our responsiveness so that we could more accurately describe risks and act accordingly. Fabulous. Uh, Andy Kramer, what are you optimistic about? Well, I think that uh, the reality is that uh, we are getting more informed and information is powerful and that I do believe that we will be able to effectively um, attack workplace bias. Um, I think that organizations are starting to focus on the need to uh, deal with bias across the board and hopefully that'll benefit the workplaces of the not too distant future. Thank you. Alan Dershowitz, are you still with us? If you are, uh, what are I you am. Uh, yes, I am. I'm optimistic because of podcasts like uh, this one. Obviously, podcasts are a double-edged sword. They can be used for good and for evil, but they are the best weapon against the cancel culture. Um, as a result of that, I have started my own podcast called The Dersh Show. All that's missing is the wits that's provided by the callers and the viewers. And I talk a lot about cancel culture. I would say my show is a combination of realism and optimism. Best definition of optimism I know came from Israel, where a pessimist says, oh, things are so bad they can't possibly get worse. And the optimist says, yes, they can. And so I'm convinced things could get worse, but I'm hoping that they'll get better and that podcast like this at least uh, allows us to fight against the cancel culture. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that ends today's session. I'm going to give a plug for next week. Uh, we have Stanford Law Professor Michael McConnell, who will discuss uh, his book about the executive and the Constitution. Uh, we have Andrew Hussey from Paris, who will be discussing his book, The French Intifada, uh, about uh, violence uh, in France. Uh, and he will be complimented by Ayan Hirsi-Ali, who's also at Stanford. Uh, she wrote the book Infidel. Um, and she's going to be discussing um, the decapitation of the French teacher who uh, discussed um, some anti-Muslim cartoons. Uh, our final speaker will be Maria Sabaleska. Uh, she's a professor in England, and she will be discussing Brexit. Okay, with that, that ends today's session. I want to thank all our listeners for coming back and joining us again uh, for today's session and joining it, of course, to our speakers uh, for their contributions. Uh, that ends today's session. Thank you so much, uh, and please disconnect. Again, thank you. Bye-bye.